As I mentioned, uh, we're beginning a series looking at this Old Testament book of Exodus. We'll be doing it in our growth groups throughout the week and we're going to be thinking together for some weeks, uh, probably 14 weeks, uh, looking at the book of Exodus. What we're going to see as we study the book of Exodus is that God is at work. He's at work in a special way to draw us in. And that's what I'm praying, that as we see God work many years ago, we're going to see not only what he did back then, but we're going to see what he's doing amongst us now. That from the birth of Israel to our church today, we worship a God who delivers, a God who rescues, and more than that, a God who rescues to dwell with his people. We've got to see that the book of Exodus contains in so many ways such clarity about who God is and how he is at work in the world. Because the world in many ways is a stage for God's glory. As I stand on this stage, uh, it contains a number of things and here it's the focal point for what goes on in our service this morning. The book of Exodus is going to teach us that the world is that focal point for what God is, for who God is, and what He is doing. And we're going to see that the world is this theatre for the, for the display of God's glory. This is indeed a theme of not just the book of Exodus, but really the first five books called the Pentateuch. They contain the Ten Commandments and a lot of other commandments and are sometimes referred to as the law or the book of the law. And there in those first five books for which the book of Exodus is one, they contain this plan for what God intends for the world that he made. We see in this first book, in the book of Genesis, we see creation and sin and God's plan to save his people through a particular person and through his line, through Abraham. And in the four other books of the Pentateuch, they tell the story, really, of Abraham's descendants from the time in Egypt all the way just before the time that God brings them into the Promised Land. And here in this second book of the Pentateuch, we have what is perhaps the most dramatic book of the Old Testament. And so what I want to do this morning is not cover everything. I just want to give us really a flavour of what this book is about. I want to take a snapshot in a big kind of view of the book of Exodus. And this morning what we're going to do, I hope, is see three things. Firstly, we're going to see that God works sovereignly to save. Secondly, we're going to see that he saves a special people through his promise. And thirdly, we're going to see that God is at work for his glory. So firstly, that God works sovereignly to save. See, the book of Exodus is it's a challenge. It's a challenge often to the way we think of God, and it's certainly a challenge to the way our modern world thinks of God. Because what we don't see in the book of Exodus is a God who is passive or disinterested. But nor do we see a God who is merely 
a resource for the improvement of our lives. Now we see a God who is in control and he is in control of the world that he has made. And in the creation of the world, back in Genesis, in the flood of judgment that he brings, in the call of Abraham, in the fulfilment, in part of the promise to Abraham through the birth of Isaac, to the rescue of Joseph, it highlights that God is sovereign. That's the setup. The book of Genesis is the setup for the book of Exodus. And what begins in Genesis continues in really magnified ways. And we see this most strikingly in the lives of two human characters in the book of Exodus. So I want to enter the book of Exodus through really the two main players, apart from God, uh, Moses and Pharaoh. So firstly, Moses. Uh, the book of Exodus gives us the account of the early stages of Moses' life. If you want to um, you've got a Bible there, it might be helpful uh, just to turn to the book of Exodus because we'll do a little bit of flipping. Uh, not that we're going to get through everything, but just to give you a bit of a sense. There, if you open up the book of Exodus to chapter 1, it contains within chapter 1 a few centuries of time. In chapter 2, it contains about 80 years of time. And for the rest of the book, from chapter 3 to chapter 40, it's only one year. So for the bulk of this book, the emphasis is on this one remarkable year. But in the first chapter, we do get some important information. At the end of the book of Genesis, God's people are around 70 to 80 in number. And at that, at that time, their brother Joseph was the prime minister, and so it looked good for God's people. It looked fantastic until Joseph died. And at some point, the positive contribution that Joseph had made, well, it fades. And as the positive contribution Joseph makes fades, the Israelites grow in number, and for Egypt, this sense of fear starts to come in, perhaps fueled by nationalism, this sense of threat is real in the nation of Egypt. And according to this, according to chapter 1, the population growth has turned into not just a problem, but Pharaoh turns it into a solution. He turns it into a cheap labour force for this massive public works campaign. And so from this privileged position that God's people are in, at the end of the book of Genesis, we start the book of Exodus where privilege is replaced by oppression, where young men are being killed. And just like baby Noah, there is a child who is protected amongst this slaughter, protected on this floating cradle, and this protection of this little baby was no accident. We see that God is at work here, sovereignly controlling what happens to protect Moses as he's found and brought up quite surprisingly in Pharaoh's 
palace by his daughter. All we know of Moses' early life is contained really in Exodus chapter 2. And so there he is as he grows up in this privileged place, in this palace. Moses has this promising future, highly educated, the right connections. And yet we learn in chapter 2 that Moses doesn't become a prince but he becomes a murderer, taking justice into his own hands, beating to death an Egyptian who was mistreating one of his fellow Hebrews. And so Moses flees into the desert with with the other descendants of Abraham to the Midianites, and there he marries and settles down. He's looking um, at a future of retirement there at the age of 80, And God calls him. And that's what we read in chapters 3 and 4. We hear of God coming surprisingly. Uh, Certainly would have been, I think, a surprise to Moses at that kind of age. Appearing to him in the burning bush and commissioning him to speak to Pharaoh on his behalf. And so we can see just in these opening chapters, we can see the drama But we can see that God is sovereignly in control. And more than just in control, God is the initiator. God has made a promise to his people, a promise through Abraham that he would bless them, that they would grow in number. And it doesn't look like that in those early chapters in the experience of Israel. And yet, despite what it looks like, God is at work. I don't think it would have been immediately obvious to Israel what God was doing. And it certainly wasn't obvious to Moses in the early stages of chapters 3 and 4 what God was doing. But here he is taking this 80-year-old shepherd and using him for his glory. In chapters 5 to 18, God empowers Moses And we'll look at these chapters in some depth in the weeks to come. God empowers Moses and raises him up as a leader to speak on God's behalf to Pharaoh. And in chapter 5, when Moses makes his demand to Pharaoh to let God's people go, Pharaoh figures that The people didn't have enough work to do. That's why they're complaining. And so he makes things so much harder for God's people. And so really in chapter 5, it's interesting because here is such promise with the one in which God has raised up, Moses, to lead. And in his first assignment, he fails. He doesn't make it any easier For God's people. In fact, he makes it three or four times harder. But what we're reminded of here is the redemption of God's people isn't Moses' fight. And he knows that. And that is such a great lesson for us that despite what we experience, the difficulty, the opposition, the criticism, 
The salvation of people is not our fight. It's God's ultimately. He uses us. And he'll use us in ways in which it doesn't feel like he's using us. It feels like sometimes we're we're losing. But we're reminded in the book of Exodus that this is how God's at work. He's at work in a very strange way, in a way that wasn't obvious to Moses at first, won't be obvious to us at first, but he is sovereign. He's in control and he is at work through his people. Moses isn't deterred or discouraged. And so what does Moses do? If this is God's fight, and although he's knocked back in his early stoush with Pharaoh, what does he do? Well, he confronts Pharaoh again and again and again in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12. How can he keep going back to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the ancient world at that time? Well, because he knows that this isn't his fight. This is God's fight. God is in control. And God has promised he will save his people. And so... We see in chapters 11 and 12 the last straw. It's the plague of the death of the firstborn in chapter 11. Chapter 12 explains it. And there in chapter 12, verse 29, there is this decisive blow for Egypt. If you want to have a look there at chapter 12, verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well, Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. At the end of the chapter, in chapter 12, we have the beginning of the exodus, this moment of release and movement of God's people from the slavery of Egypt toward the promised land. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 51, we read of Moses leading the people out. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt. In chapters 13 and 14, we have not just the rescue, as we see earlier, but we have the climax of God's victory over the Egyptians, where we find Moses leading the people safely through the parted waters and the trapped Egyptians who have changed their mind from releasing um, God's people to, at Pharaoh's instruction, hunting them down. We read in chapter 14, verse 23, the Egyptians pursued them and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let us get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. See the God who's at work in the book of Exodus? It's a God who is in control. 
It's a God who is sovereign. It's a God who is at work sovereignly to, to, to rescue his people, even down to the details of the chariot's wheels and the way in which some translations have it, they get stuck in the mud. God is at work in rescuing Israel. He's at work in every moment of Israel's rescue, in the big picture and in the details. And that is true for us as well. We worship a God who is at work in the big picture. He controls our world. But just as he knew and was at work in the details of the chariots, in the wheels of the chariots, so too God is at work in the details of our lives, in the little things that others don't see and don't know. God is at work in us. Chapters 16 to 18, we read of this three-month journey as God rescues his people out of Egypt and leads them towards Mount Sinai, providing for his people both water and manna and quail and even protecting them from attack. So God is at work sovereignly through his servant Moses. But what's really interesting in the book of Exodus is we see that God is just at work, as just as as much as God is at work in Moses, he's also at work in Pharaoh. We see him sovereign over Pharaoh's life, uh, almost in the opposite way. Uh, We see the blessing throughout the book of uh, Exodus that God brings to Moses, and we see his, in part, his obedience, um, but The opposite is true for Pharaoh. We see his judgment of Pharaoh. But God raised Pharaoh up in the same way in which he raises Moses. If you flick back to Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, we read that a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. How did this Pharaoh, who knew nothing of Joseph, come to power? Well, by God's sovereign hand. Because nothing, as we read and as we discover in the book of Exodus, is outside of God's control. We know this from the New Testament. Paul reflects on this in a speech. In Acts chapter 17, verse 26, he says, From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. See, God was at work in Pharaoh to raise him up. And what we're going to come across in a couple of weeks' time is the way in which God just doesn't only raise Pharaoh up, but he raises him up and hardens his heart. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, we read this. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. See, what we read in the book of Exodus is that 
was God's clear purpose to harden Israel's heart. And this phrase we'll see repeated through chapters 7 to 11, the hardening of his heart. God Pharaoh's, uh, hardened sorry, Pharaoh's heart. But at the same time, we'll also read that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And so Pharaoh is held responsible for his acts of evil and his opposition to God and his people. But this isn't outside God's control. And so again, we're reminded that, that God is sovereign. He's not passive, even in those who are opposed to him. It's not just that he's in control of his own people and everything that happens to them and all the evil that comes against him is, is kind of outside of his control, an accident, something that God has to respond to. Now, that's not what we read in the scriptures. Circumstances don't determine God's plan. God's plan determines the circumstances. And so the Bible deals all throughout, really, the scriptures with the unlikely. There's Moses, this one who was rescued in unlikely circumstances, who was brought up in Pharaoh's household, who was exiled himself out into the desert. At the age of 80, he comes as one man to represent his people, held in shackles and in chains to the power of Pharaoh and his army. And so it's unlikely. It's inconceivable in human terms that anything would happen for the Israelites. But this is the God that we worship. We worship a God who works in unlikely ways. We worship a God who is at work through his people in the face of opposition. And there's much opposition that we face. A world who is disinterested in God. A world who often is antagonistic to the things of God. A world that has a level of ignorance around what the Bible is saying. And out of that ignorance and half-truth conclude all kinds of things about Christian people and about what we're about and about what we're doing. But God is working his purposes throughout that opposition, in the middle of unlikely circumstances, through frail and weak people like us. And why does he do that? Well, he does that for the same reason he did it in the book of Exodus. Because God wants his people to trust him. If it was all laid out on a platter for us, if it was a simple kind of plan of A, B and C with a blue sky, we need not trust God much. But God doesn't lay it out like that for us. He lays it as he does in the face of opposition so that we might trust him and his promises. So firstly, God is at work through his sovereignty to save his people. We'll move pretty quickly on to the next two points. Second point is that God is at work to save a special people. We see that God extends his mercy, but he extends it to his people, those that he's made promises to, those promises 
um, back in Genesis chapter 12 through his servant Moses. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, we read, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. See, it is a particular people that God chooses. The whole world is God's and he is sovereignly in control of it all. But God works to save a special people because of his promise. Because of his covenant, we read in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4. We're going to think more about how important it is when God makes a promise that he is faithful. And throughout the book of Exodus, and indeed, as we see the sweep of the rest of the Bible, we'll see God's faithfulness to his promise. Ten Commandments are given to his people in chapter 20. And the main way that Israel is to be different, the main way that they are to be distinguished is by how they live. And this is why God gave the law to Moses, to the people through Moses. It's to reflect his character, yes, but it's also because he wants his people to be different. God is different and holy amongst all the other gods of the ancient world. And so he wants those that he's rescued to be different and to be distinct. And so he gives this law, he gives these commandments, and the way that they live are to be distinct, just like he's distinct. So there aren't to be any idols. Servants are to be carefully treated, unlike the way in which the Egyptians treated the servants. Justice is to be done. Responsibility is to be taken. Property is to be protected. Compassion is to be shown. Why? Because God says that he's the God of compassion in Exodus chapter 34. And so his people are to live like him. Chapters 24, this covenant, this promise of God is confirmed. And then up to chapter 32, God is on the mountain with Moses for 40 days, receiving instructions from God about how God's people are to worship. And these instructions are really to show this plan of the mercy of God. You see, how is it that the people of God can obey the Ten Commandments? Well, it's because they've been rescued. They weren't given the commandments when they were in slavery. They were given them on the road to the promised land. They were given them in preparation for the promised land. God's commandments and God's law are a sign of his blessing. It's not a restriction. It's not a, a control, a straitjacket. It's to remind them that they are rescued people and that they are to reflect his character. But as many of us know, in chapter 32, while Moses is on the mountain, 
Impatience makes way for idolatry. Out of their grumbling comes a greater sin as they worship the golden calf. And the great irony is that God is a God who has rescued them, but in the middle of their rescue, they betray him. God's people, the ones that he has cared for and loved, the ones that he has already brought out of Egypt and has promised to take them to this new place of Canaan, they now rebel against him. And this is a great reminder for us. Sin is surprising. It catches us off guard. It's not our first um, realisation that we are sinful. And nor was it for Israel. God intends to judge his people in response to their idolatry. He won't let it go unpunished. And there, in God's anger, Moses intercedes. He comes down from the mountain, throwing the tablets, disciplining the people. Moses goes off to make atonement on behalf of his people, offering himself. And in the last five chapters, in chapter 35 to 40, everything is down precise. Everything is recorded precisely for the construction of the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 39, verse 42, we read this. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. That's the book of Exodus. They're they're the 40 chapters. There's a sense of the journey that God's people are taken on. And so I want to just really close with this way, in this way. Um, Particularly, really, as we think about what God has done in the book of Exodus, their holiness as a people was to reflect God's holiness. And the tabernacle was a great reminder of that. This tent of meeting was a reminder that God had come close, a sign of his presence. But also the tabernacle is also a reminder of their sin. The God who dwells is still separate. He is holy in a way that they are not. And he's at work for his glory as he rescues his people. I want to end in this way with Exodus chapter 6. A great reminder that God is at work for his glory. In Exodus chapter 6, Moses is instructed to say to the Israelites, I am on God's behalf. I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. See, why does God rescue his people? Why does he free them? Why did he judge the Egyptians? Well, we're told in the very next verse, then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Here a reminder as to why God is at work 
for the salvation of his people. It's for his glory. It's not merely for our benefit. There is great benefit for us. But God ultimately is at work for his glory and in saving his people in the book of Exodus and the way in which he has saved us in the Lord Jesus, a greater Moses, a greater rescue, a greater rest, we too are reminded that God is at work for his glory and he's at work for his glory through us. Stephen and Paul both wondered why people didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. And where did they turn for their answer? They turned to the book of Exodus. We are God's people only by his mercy. And by his mercy, he has been gracious to us. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 reminds us that Christ was our Passover lamb, that he is taking us to a greater rest than the land of Canaan. He's rescued us not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of the Lord Jesus. So just as Moses was encouraged to live for his glory in the face of opposition, we too are reminded And I hope as we look at this book to live for his glory. I pray that we might do that in the face of opposition that we face. Amen. Please stand as we sing.